0: I wanted to build something, I wanted to make something. And and then I I made a decision. That was a very important decision. I said, I'm going to follow my heart and not my mind. My mind would have told me to do something in e-commerce or elsewhere, right? But my heart was always drawn to science.
1: Welcome to Tough Tech Today with Mayan and Miller. This is the premiere show featuring trailblazers who are building technologies today to solve tomorrow's toughest challenges. Welcome to Tough Tech Today with mine and Miller. Our special guest today is Syriac Roding, uh, a co-founder of Early. Early is a really interesting company, a really interesting concept um, that in a nutshell, as I understand it, it's looking to make cancer cells point to themselves so that it's easier to detect these kind of cancers. So Syriac, what is this? This sounds like science fiction. Can you help, help explain how this works?
0: It is science fiction and whether it's going to become science uh, remains to be seen so that it doesn't remain fiction. We are working on turning this into a real thing. The idea is, is the following. What if we could stop searching for cancer altogether? What if we could stop making it so hard, finding, trying to find a blood sample and then getting a blood sample and trying to find something in that tiny sample out of five liters of blood volume or, you know, going to a PET scanner or an MRI scanner and hoping that we're going to see something. What if we could instead stop searching and force the cancer to reveal itself and literally show us what it's doing. What if we could turn the cancer into its own enemy and into a factory that produces the biomarkers that we can then easily detect in the blood? That's what early is about. It is turning the tables. It's flipping the whole thing on its head. And it's using gene technology to change the cancer itself so that it has to make a biomarker that doesn't belong in human bodies at all. Think of it, for example, limonene. Limonene is in oranges, not in humans, unless you eat them. But if you are exhaling limonene and you haven't eaten oranges, then you might have cancer because the cancer was forced to make limonene.
1: That okay? That sounds that sounds wild. Um, so, how it, help us? How how do you do this? And it sounds like is this to me? It would be, sounds like this would be something that like uh, right after birth, you kind of give somebody the the cancer detector dose and then yes. and then everyone's kind of like inoculated in some way. Um, how does it work, though, in practice? So that that's not how it works. The
0: idea is that this is transient in nature. So whenever there is a concern that might be might have to be addressed, then we are injecting something into you. And in the future, it might even be a pill or an inhalation. And then a couple of days later, Uh, You are either getting a a PET scan to find out where it is, or you're getting a blood sample taken in order to find out whether we find something. So let me give you an example from practice, which I think makes it very clear. In lung cancer, 94% of all lung nodules, these are the tiny lesions in the lung that are being found on a low-dose CT scan, they're benign, 94% of them. And a lot of people have lesions, especially smokers. You know, there's two and a half million people in the United States alone that quit smoking every year. That most of them quit for health reasons, not because they don't like smoking. And then they get a low dose CT scan made to make sure their lungs are okay. 60% or more of these find lesions in the lung, these nodules, out of which, as I said, 94% are benign, 6% are malignant. The problem is, No one knows which 6%. So the standard of care today, believe it or not, is to send them home and tell them to come back in 6 to 12 months to find out whether any of these lesions might have grown in the meantime. And if it has grown, then it might be cancer, and we're taking a biopsy. In that 6 to 12-month span, your small lesion that might have been a Homogeneous cancer, which I'll talk about in a moment what that means, might have turned into a heterogeneous cancer, which is much harder to treat.
2: Mm-hmm. Let it, uh,
0: what is homogeneous? Homogeneous means that, the, as you know, cancer is a mutation of your own cell, right? It is not somebody else's cell. It's not some external invader. It's your own cell that has gone havoc, if you will, has gone haywire and has mutated in a way. And in an early homogeneous cancer, most of the time, the number of mutations of different types of cancer cells is really only one or two. It's a very small number of mutation, mutated types of cells. In a heterogeneous cancer, in contrast, you might have 40, 50, 60 different mutations. And if you take chemotherapy, for example, you might kill 48 out of 50 mutations. The two that you're not killing, they are the ones that will kill you so if you can catch this early when the number of types of cells is lower you have a much better chance at actually getting rid of the entire cancer and really making this one chapter of your life but not your last one and that's precisely why early detection is so important early detection is not as important because of the size of the tumor most people believe it's the size of the tumor that matters. That doesn't matter as much because you can surgically remove a large cancer or a small cancer. What is dangerous is the heterogeneity. Hmm. The heterogeneity of the cancer is what drives the, 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 hard, the, the, the hardness to treat it. And if we can catch this early, if you take a look at the top five cancers in, in, in America that kill the most people, you have lung cancer breast cancer, um, liver cancer, pancreatic cancer, and and then uh, a range of other cancers like ovarian, prostate, and so on. If you take a look at these cancers, if you could find them at stage one, your five-year survival rate is between four to 16 times higher than if you find it at stage three or four. And that is the biggest lever to save lives, bigger than almost any new therapy that is being brought to market. To give you an example, you know, multi-billion dollar cancer therapies uh, that are brought to market, for example, based on immu- immune uh, uh, responses, they are often helping extend lifespans by approximately on average, the median extension is like three to four months. And, and of course, three to four months is very valuable for people who are facing cancer. But when you're talking about survival rates and five-year survival rates, long-term survival, catching it early is the number one driver to help people survive much, much longer.
2: So your name is absolutely perfect then, right? Early. You know, you just said it like <laughs> 20 times and, and that's huge. So your your technology is really there to to detect cancer earlier than basically anyone ever imagined possible and for a person like this lung cancer patient by um, I guess injecting these markers in early where you first see those nodules you can what basically put the person into a a PET scan and within like I mean after you inject them how long until these cells start making uh, the biomarkers is it instant or they come back in another
0: week it's a great question. So the, the general clinical use case can be one of two, two types. One is there has been already something done. There has been a liquid biopsy made, for example, and somebody says, well, we found something in your blood. And according to our artificial intelligence and our analysis, methylation pattern analysis, sequencing technology, whatever it may be, we believe that most likely you might have something in the lung that is malignant. They can tell you what they call the tissue of origin. In other words, which organ is this likely uh, happening at? Mm
2: -hmm.
0: They, of course, by definition, because it's ex vivo, it's outside of the body, right? They can't tell you where in the lung the problem is, by definition. So now you're taking a low-dose CT scan. Or you might have just taken a low-dose CT scan because you quit smoking and you wanted to... Be, be checked, right, in a, in a, in a prevention me- method. And then you are seeing something on that low-dose CT scan. Maybe there are four or five different nodules in different places. And you're looking at it, they're really small, and you don't really know, is any of them malignant? And if so, which one? Or all of them? So now you could say, well, why don't you just take all of them out? Well, you really can't. Because if you want to do that, if they're in, in different lobes of the lung, in some cases, you might be able to wedge out some of these lesions. In other cases, you have to take an entire lobe of the lung out. Even if you just biopsy them, you have risks that during the biopsy, you might deflate the lung. That they, so the, it's called a deflated lung. It's like there's, the air is going out. There's a puncture. It is, so there's risk while you're doing that. So it's not actually advisable to just go and you know try different five different nodules and see what happens. But what if you could light up the one that is malignant and not light up the ones that are not malignant mm-hmm. and see that on a, P, on a PET scan exactly which one it is. And now you can take use precision radiation or targeted surgery, traditional existing techniques to take out the nodule that needs to be taken out. And in some cases, you might have to take out a whole lobe of the lung for one nodule, even if it's small. Now, there are only so many lobes we have in the lung, right? So in order to make sure you can keep breathing, we have absolutely to limit the number of lobes we're taking out. And so if we're able to light up the ones that are malignant and leave the other ones in, then we have a much better chance at making sure a, you don't get a larger tumor later, and B, you can keep breathing um, uh, in, a, in a way that doesn't impact your life too much. So that is the classic situation in which this could be used if we can manage to make this thing work.
2: Yes. So, so you, you mentioned that the cells light up under the scan. Oh, what, how, do, how do they actually light up? Is it like a physical light or is it just producing a, uh, some sort of tag chemical that the PET scan can detect?
0: Yeah, the way this works is that two days after our injection, two to three days afterwards, right, the the, uh, genetic technology that we can talk about in a moment will have done its job, the biology will have done its job. And now you're injecting a radioactive PET tracer. And that PET tracer is normally too small uh, to be catching really, really tiny tumors. It doesn't actually light up the really small ones, uh, because it is just too small. But in this case, we are forcing the tumor to express an enzyme. And only the cancer cells, not healthy cells, express an enzyme that eats up the radioactive PET tracer that has been injected. And it traps the tum- the, the tracer that's inside the tumor that's normally too small to image and makes that tumor imageable. And now that you have the exact location on a PET scan, you can now go in and surgically remove it or radiate it. And in the future, by the way, you might even be able to use the early platform to trigger a localized immune response inside the tumor and then potentially kill the cancer with the immune system.
1: That's uh, it's awesome. So then on, yeah, you mentioned that early early as a platform. Is it that there's? I mean, the, the detection sounds like that's the that's the the core part of the value proposition. Um, is there also then? I mean, this is complementary to um, say the targeted removal of certain sort of malignant or potentially likely malignant tumors. But then the the platform is that a is that software? Is this is this more than just a Uh, An injectable and not just in a belittling way. I mean, just in terms of there's there's that the how you light up the the tumors, um, which. But then what else makes this work as the early platform?
0: Yeah, think of this as a you rightfully call it a platform. Think of this as a bioengineered platform. And the bioengineered platform has four main components. There is a vector. The vector is like a transportation vehicle that you can you can add things into it. And inside the vector is an if-then clause. If cancer then makes something. And there is a uh, certain promoter reporter construct that we are developing that that distinguishes between cancer and non-cancer it's even possible to have multiple of these and create logical and and or gates to drive up the what's called the specificity of the system which determines whether it's cancer or not cancer and then out and then the output is a reporter that brings back the information that there is a problem or there's no problem and that can be a blood marker or it could be a breath marker like the limonia example i gave or it could be a um localization marker, an image marker, or it could be a kill agent that actually helps get rid of the cancer or something that triggers the immune response. And then the last part is a delivery agent. The the job of the delivery agent is to distribute it through the body and into the nuclei of the cancer cells. And then we have this system of four main parts. And now our job at Early is to optimize that system and engineer our way forward, almost like engineers. Like think of us as bioengineers, not as as a biotech company. We think about it in an iterative form, just like engineers do. You take something, you optimize it, you tweak it, you do it again until it's so good that it fulfills its purpose. And that's one of the reasons why I decided to jump into this, because I love the idea of having multiple shots on goal and iterating our way forward, rather than spending a billion dollars on a small molecule develop, development, hoping that by the end of the million billion dollars, you're going to find out that it's it's going to work, uh, or it, it may not work. And that kind of risk profile, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not going to take that. I, <laughs> I do uh, applaud the companies that do take that risk and do it, but that's not how I like to build startup companies. So I find this to be highly attractive, this bioengineering approach that we have.
1: I, I would like if you could elaborate more on on that because uh, something that, in terms of taking action, and then there's being a reaction to that, and and importantly capturing the feedback and shortening that loop so that we we are able to to make smaller, more frequent experiments. Um, that's really helpful to expedite our learning. How do you make that learning occur faster? And like in terms of early's designer the the intentionality that you bring to whether it's technical milestones, et cetera. How how do you and what advice you'd have in terms of helping others be able to look at their problem set and see, you know what, how could I make my learnings go faster? Uh, yeah, when well. we first
0: started the company at early, uh we told our investors that we don't want to fall into into what we call the mouse trap. So what's the mouse trap? In biotech, the mousetrap is every two years you go to a startup and you say, when are you going to be in humans? And the answer will be in two years from now. And then two yeah. years later, you come back and say, when will you be in humans? And the answer will be two years from now. And that is the mouse trap because you're always stuck in the mouse model. There's always something you can try to make it better. You can always iterate again. So in order to not fall into this mousetrap, you have to take multiple steps to uh, eliminate that. The first thing is you got to make a decision that at a certain point in time it's cut-off time and then you're taking that compound however good or not perfect it is yet and you bring it to the clinic. It's called bringing it to the clinic to the to humans for testing. And then the second thing that you have to do is look at what takes so long to get into the clinic to begin with. You probably know this but for, for those who are not from the industry, it takes normally between five to eight years to go to the clinic for the first human trial. And then you have three main trials. You have a phase one, a phase two, and a phase three. And before you know it, it's 10 to 12 years later. And that is also the answer to the question that I initially asked as a total outsider to the industry. you are allowed to ask really, really dumb questions. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I make, <laughs> make full use of that. One of my questions was, You know, whenever you read an article about a medical breakthrough, it almost inevitably ends on the last sentence. And it will take at least 10 years until we will test it in humans. And as an outsider, you look at it and you say, so what in the world are we going to do the next nine years? And of course, the answer is very simple. We're trying to avoid that people die along the way. And because we want to avoid that, we are going to put it into mice first. And mice are mice. They're not humans. They are far away from being who we are. They are also not developing natural cancers in most cases when they're being tested. In fact, uh, what, what you do is instead, you take mouse strains, types of mice that are immunocompromised. In other words, they don't have an active immune system so that you can inject human cells that are not being rejected by their immune system they need to be immunocompromised, otherwise you cannot inject any human cells that you want to test. And then the next thing is oftentimes you are actually injecting cell lines. These are immortal cell lines that have been developed 50 years ago, cancer cell lines, for example, for lung cancer, and you're injecting that. And then you watch it grow and it grows within three weeks. And then in four or five weeks, the mouse is at a point where it, it's, it dies from cancer. So this is a very artificial model. Is it better than being only in the Petri dish? Absolutely, because the drop-off, you know, you can measure this, what the drop-off is from, from a con- concept to a what's called in vitro in the Petri dish to in vivo in mice and then going to humans. There's a huge drop-off, so there is an advantage of being in mice, but it's absolutely not who we are. So the question then is, how can you quickly move beyond that and what I wanted to say in order to save time, the way we did it was we, we reverse engineered when we wanted to be in the clinic. And we had told our investors when we first got financed in the summer of 2018, we want to be in humans within three years from found, founding the company. And, and they kind of chuckled and said, that's great. And you know, I could tell that this was very hard for them to believe. And we said, no, actually, we need it because we want to avoid the mousetrap. And they say, well, that's good. So then we said, OK, how are we going to do this? So we sat down and looked at the time plan, the 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 entire time that we would have three years, what needs to happen in order to actually be in the clinic within that time frame. So then we identified the major drivers of time and the first First one is what I mentioned, it's this constant iteration on mice and you never find the time when you think it's good enough. By the way, it's never good enough. <laughs> Just like when you write software, it's never good enough. You ship another one tomorrow, right? Well, it's similar in biology. There's always something you can improve. So you have to give yourself a deadline when you're freezing freezing the current product that goes to the clinic. Number two, there's a large time span that is being used in order to get approval from the authorities, meaning the FDA, in order to start a human trial. So normally this can take a year or longer, one and a half years until you actually submit everything and then you have to wait. So in because of all the, the, the cycles, not because of the initial response time, but because there are multiple cycles and then the FDA might have feedback and so on. Mm-hmm. So in order to reduce that time drastically, we said, well, Maybe we don't have to do this in the U.S. at first. Can we go somewhere else where it's faster? So we went to China, and we visited Chinese clinics. It was fascinating, very interesting.
1: Then, what, we, approximately what, what year is this now?
0: This is late 2018, right after starting okay. the company. Within three or four, hmm. three or four months, we were in China.
1: Yeah, so that's a lot of wow. That's and that's so much progress on. Uh, for a startup in such short time, I guess it is, it is building on some prior research that I, I think we'd like to get into a little bit later. But, yeah. But as a, as a status check. OK, so three months into a formal company and now in China doing this kind of these kind of tests.
0: No, not, not tests yet. We, we were trying to figure out whether we should go to China for our first human trial. OK. So mm-hmm. we were trying to find out whether China might, might be a good place to do it. Okay. So then after that, we went to the Netherlands and there is a wonderful phase called phase one clinic in Leiden in the Netherlands. We looked at that one. Then we looked at the Cayman Islands because it's very close to the US. You could potentially send patients there, but in late stage cancer, which is our first trial, because you have to start from later and, and find your way to earlier stage cancer. That's going to be hard uh, to, to actually have a a plane fly there. Um, Plus, the Cayman Islands don't have the credibility for clinical trials. And then we looked at Australia. And Australia is a very interesting place for clinical trials. It is highly professional. It is constantly being used for clinical trials, and therefore the FDA has a lot of experience with using data from from Australia. Um, And uh, there is even an incentive payment uh, uh, from the government to make it cheaper. But the very most important thing is the regulatory approvals are happening at the local level, not at the government's federal level in most cases, except few exceptions. Mm-hmm. And that drastically speeds up the approval process. It shaves, up, shaves off about nine to 12 months of the timeline right there. Wow. And if you do another phase one trial, it will save you another nine to 12 months. So we said, OK, this is so interesting. We're going to do this. So we set up a 100% uh, owned subsidiary of early, it's called early PTY Limited in Australia. And that uh, subsidiary's only job is to run, officially run the clinical trial that's happening in Australia. We then signed up two of the three largest cancer centers in Australia, the Olivia Newton-John in in Melbourne and the Chris O'Brien Lifehouse in Sydney. And they are going to perform our clinical trial. And now in order to get there, you then have to do what's called Rectox and Acute Tox studies because you have to show that your compound is safe enough to go into humans. How do you do mm-hmm. that? You can do that in mice. And ideally, you're also doing it in larger animals. So which larger animal is really good for, um, for testing this? The best one we could think about was would be dogs.
2: No dogs, okay.
0: Why dogs? Because so many dogs develop spontaneous cancers. Mm. In fact, 6 million of them per year. And so we went into healthy dogs first to prove that our compound is safe. Uh, and the, the animal of choice here is is, is our beagles. So we te- tested this in 54 healthy beagles. Everything was good. And then we took it uh, to um, cancer dogs. And we did that in, in the last year, in the middle of the pandemic. There's a wonderful uh, investigator uh, his name is Michael Kent at the University of California at Davis, one of the best vets vet, uh, clinics in the, uh, and schools in the country. And he, he and us uh, 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 performed this canine trial. Uh, and, uh, and now after canine data is in, we knock on wood, if all goes well, we'll start our first human trial in Australia in the next few weeks.
2: Wow, next few weeks, so... And that
0: will be two mo- two years and nine months after starting the company.
2: So you're <laughs> exceeding your goal by three months.
0: It was, a, it, it's a race against the clock, I could tell you that, but it is doable. And and I'm very passionate yeah. about this part. And I, 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 I know why you're asking, I, th- I believe, because one of the biggest problems in biotech is the speed. It is radically different from what we're used to from the tech world, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I come from the tech world. I, I'm not from the biotech world. And my co-founder, uh, uh, David Sui, uh, he's from the biotech world. But fortunately, he has got an extremely malleable brain and open mind. So we're working together, very much convinced that we don't want to wait seven years to be in the clinic. So we're reverse engineering it all. And we're paralyzing so many things. Mm-hmm. There are so many work streams at early that have to go in parallel. It's, it's a pretty risky game, I have to say, because every little piece has to be ready at the right time. Otherwise, if one is missing, you cannot proceed. But by parallelizing, you're driving up the, the probability of potentially being ready with all pieces much earlier. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a big strain on the company, of course, because so many things are happening in parallel. I always have this vision in mind that we're like we're like a, um like a team on a sailboat on a racing boat and we're really hard on the wind because we put so much pressure on the machine <laughs> there's so many things that have to happen in parallel yeah that it's it's pretty intense but on the other hand that's also the excitement of building a startup company that you can des- decide the pace you're going at while in a large company that's a lot harder yeah yeah wow that's
2: that's amazing. So not only early detection of cancer, but also early to human trials, and you know, speed is everything. And I think um,
0: we're trying to be early all around. Yes, <laughs> early, early all
2: around. But I think you made a, a really good point that um, um, Jake Bcraft, one of our other guests, made. It was really a, a similar point. Is that you know, your product has potential ability to save lives. So. The more time that it takes you to get your product to market, you know, the more people that could benefit of it potentially, you know, miss out on that. And so, that just must be really powerful motivation. I kind of want to follow up on that with, you know, you had mentioned and alluded to um, your background in software, and I've done my research, and you you really came from the software world. Um, you've you've started some companies. I guess you started Shopkick and and sold that and did some other things can you talk a little bit about your background as an entrepreneur and software and how that's you know made an impact um you know on you and how you operate in the biospace
0: yeah i am i'm, I'm a, a sort of an engineer and uh, and entrepreneur uh i'm not a biotech person so i'm not a biologist i'm not a scientist um, our company at early is currently 24 people, out of, out of which 22 are sci- cancer scientists, and two are not. That's me and my assistant, <laughs> and everybody else knows what they're doing there. So how how did this come about? Uh, essentially, um, I created uh, companies in the consumer space before. Uh, my first company was in '99. Um, uh, it was a Mobile marketing company at the time. You you might remember cell phones had green screens and one line on it. It was (laughs) insanely early, (laughs) and we worked with uh, companies like Coca Cola and McDonald's and Adidas and L'Oreal to drive mobile marketing into the into the world, largely on packages where you could find a code on printed on a on a fries package or Coca Cola bottle on the back of the label. You text it in and receive a wallpaper or or ringtone or mobile game back to your phone in in return. And that company turned profitable in 03 uh, as a survivor of the bubble burst. And I left um, in 04 and I wanted to move to Silicon Valley or Shanghai because those were the biggest growth centers in the world from my point of view. And I ended up in Los Angeles uh, at CBS, the, uh, the, uh, the big television network. And I joined them because they had zero people in mobile, while Disney already had 270. And I thought zero people is a lot better than one, because it means you can shape this thing. So I joined them in 2008, uh, sorry, in 2005. uh, And uh, it was a fascinating time. As you know, the iPhone came out in 07. So this was pre-iPhone, flip phones, that kind of thing. But just as we were talking at that point, mobile video came out. We created a whole mobile television channel with CSI on it. Uh, and, and even CSI games that would call you when you're not playing the game. If you don't show up in the next five minutes and play the game, you're a really <laughs> bad agent and you lose points, right? And, and we, we created all this content, Big Brother, you know, there was an interactive show element where you literally were changing by your phone what would be happening in the real show on TV. It was, it was very exciting. But then I wanted to build a company again. I left in 08 and I finally moved to Silicon Valley. It was my third attempt. Uh, and we, you know my, my then girlfriend and now wife, we moved up here. We subleased a house in Palo Alto that was for sale. It was open house every Sunday which uh, by the way, was actually very practical because it made us always keep it tidy because otherwise you have to clean up every week. <laughs> so, and then um, and then I uh, got lucky and I was uh, invited to join Kleiner Perkins as an entrepreneur in residence, the venture capital firm. Uh, and that was a big th- uh, dream for me because I was been, I'd been so fascinated with Sand Hill Road and, and, and Silicon Valley for so long that I thought this was a, would be a wonderful opportunity. The problem was, uh, and by the way, 2008, right, the iPhone was just a year old, the App Store opened in July, and I was going to join in September. So from that point of view, great timing. But from another point of view, terrible timing, because my first day, (laughs) my first day was September 15th of 08. Oh, boy. Do you remember what happened on that day?
1: It's not good. (laughs) Lehman
0: Brothers went belly up that morning. Yeah. And all funding froze to a halt in Silicon Valley. And I was that entrepreneur in residence who was brought here to come up with a new idea. while nobody else got funded anyway. So I was expecting to get fired any day. And uh, strangely and kindly, Kleiner Perkins didn't fire me. So I stayed there. And then I came up with this thing called Shopkick which is a shopping app that rewards you simply for walking into a store without buying anything. So for walking into Walmart or Target or Macy's or Best Buy, you would earn points. These points would turn into gift cards, electronic gift cards that you can show at the register and get a discount. And importantly, you could earn points at Target and spend them at Walmart or vice versa. That was up to you. And Best Buy became the first partner to sign up uh, when you know my job was, this was crazy, middle of the financial crisis. Uh, everybody was firing everybody. And I showed up and I had to say, well, you should really invest in the future. It's called mobile. <laughs> and they had just set up their first fa- Facebook fan page and thought they were in the future. And they had fired half of their staff and I asked them to invest. And they said, well, if we did this, um so do you have a team and i said well if you are willing to sign up then i might have a team and they said well do you have funding and i said well if you sign up i might get funding (laughs) so it's the classic um you know chicken chicken or egg problem and the job of the entrepreneur is to break the egg somebody has to break the egg and that's kind of the art of entrepreneurship i guess breaking the egg and then I got, uh, I got lucky, and Best Buy, after f- literally uh, 40 meetings with 60 executives, I'm not making this up, uh, they said yes to an LOI. I didn't even have a company yet. And then we got f- uh, I got funding from Kleiner Perkins, and then we got a team of excellent people, uh, co-founders, two, uh, two other co-founders, and, and then the team was built out uh, and then we got Macy's on board uh, after Best Buy and then Target, which was the uh, massive win. Uh, and then various other retailers uh, came on board and then brands like Procter & Gamble came on. So that was that was Shopkick. And Shopkick then um, was uh, was hard work, but it turned into a uh, relatively successful thing. Uh, 20 million people downloaded the app and the app drove over a billion dollars in sales for our partners And in 2014, the company got acquired by SK Telecom in South Korea that wanted a U.S. market entry, and they paid $250 million for it. Uh, And then I stayed for another year and then I left. And then I wanted to take two years off. I thought, you know, I'm so exhausted. I think I'm going to take two years off. (laughs) So then we packed up our little micro children, Angel and I. Uh, we had two two little boys at the time. Now we have three, but at the time they were three and one. We packed them up, went to Beijing. And for a whole month, uh, I just kept meeting with, with Chinese startup entrepreneurs. All the way from um, uh, Xing Wang, who is an incredible entrepreneur, built Meituan, at the time worth $20 billion, now worth over $100 billion in public. Uh, and I went all the way to an earlier and earlier stage, until I finally met with people at uh, entrepreneur restaurant, uh, cafes where they were hanging out, not knowing which idea they should pursue at all. They just knew they wanted to build a company. So I got an incredible view of China and I went to Shenzhen as well. Came back, went to Europe, looked at the European startup system, came back again, and now it was six months in. And suddenly I became very unhappy because I realized that this early retirement thing was not for me at all. I didn't like it at all. And, and I made a decision there and then, and I'll stick to it, I think. I will never go into retirement.
1: Okay, so You I lasted I will,
0: six months. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think I will just keep going because I wanted to build something. I wanted to make something.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and, then I, and then I made a decision. That was a very important decision. I said, I'm going to follow my heart and not my mind. My mind would have told me to do something in e-commerce or elsewhere, right? But my heart was always drawn to science. I love science, although I'm not a scientist, and I'm not a biologist either. But I just love science.
1: Was there something that prompted you on, on that, like to follow to follow what's inside um, and not what, you know, not the rational part of ours? Is.
0: I I made you know I look. I thought about this and I. I saw who was really happy um, and it's always the people that do what they love to do. Mm-hmm. You, you don't build a startup company because you're trying to get rich. That is, that is potentially a very nice side effect. But by the way, just to just be clear, the odds are completely stacked against you. <laughs> There's a way less than 1% chance of winning this game. So, you know, the lottery is, is, is probably worse, but not that much worse. So, you know, if you want to actually spend the next five to 10 years of your life on something, it had better be something you love. And so I just made this decision. I'm not going to spend my time on something I don't love. And the second thing I decided was, look, I got really lucky with Shopkick. I got um, I had, um, you know, I I was financially free and I felt, okay. this is an incredible uh, opportunity. It's a one time chance. And if I'm 80 and I look back to my, on my life and I say, did I actually make use of that opportunity? I'm not going to feel the answer is yes, if I don't do something that actually benefits more than just me. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to do something that has meaning to it, that is meaningful. And, and, and when we win, everybody wins, not just the company I create. So that was mm-hmm. my other motivator. So then I thought, okay, let me just observe myself a little bit more. What am I naturally reading about, or hearing about, or getting my head, you know, uh, stuck in when I'm when I have no obligations? And it's mm-hmm. always reading about the latest cool technology and science, and uh, and and usually technology that is really has the, cha- the ability to change the world. And those are usually moonshots. These are usually mm-hmm. not. Small incremental improvements. And then I also knew the old story from Peter Thiel and from from Reid Hoffman. They all say the same thing. You are already going to give 100% of your energy you have. It doesn't matter which idea you're going to pursue. It's always going to eat 100% of your energy. So you might as well use it on a really big idea because you're going to use the same level of energy. And so I said, okay, then I'm just going to listen. And I'm gonna take the risk that I know I'm I'm absolutely clueless in the area that I'm gonna go into. And so I followed my heart and I was I looked at consumer robots, I looked at brain-to-machine interfaces, and I looked at biology means engineering and software. In brain-to-machine interfaces, I ended up I ended up helping a Guy sitting in a dilapidated building in Berkeley who was shooting microwaves at his own head, trying to decipher his own thoughts.
1: Sounds like that's going to be well. <laughs> well, I actually,
0: I actually put this machine on my own head, too. It's uh, yeah. re- I, I actually believe that... Was um, it safe? It's actually very safe because uh, it's about the energy under the curve, the integral. In other words, the total sum of all... Um, of all amplitudes accumulated over time that is damaging or not damaging to your brain. It's less about the peaks, it's more about the the total integral. And if you use your cell phone, you get a lot of the same kind of uh, exposure uh, at a lower level, but much more constant. While Mm. in this case, you're pulsing it pretty rarely. So I actually believe that microwaves may be potentially the best opportunity for non-implanted, non-invasive brain-to-machine interfaces in the future. But mm-hmm. to be clear, this is lo- a long time coming. This is a long time away and uh, not the right time mm-hmm. to start a company. So I decided not to do that. <laughs> but there'll probably be at, some
2: so- social pushback, too, on microwaving your brain.
0: You yeah, know, like but you <laughs> know, there, there's, there's pushback on a lot of things until you can prove it's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not too worried about that um but in the um software meets biology and engineering space i got really hooked uh so that's how i got to this to this whole thing there's there's a story of how i found early but that's how i got to this area of biology meets engineering and software
1: and that's an and that's an area that yeah we're seeing I mean, there's so much uh opportunity and so much development in it so that's where where Uh, It's interesting, you guys, as an engineer, and I'll say it sort of like as a software and other flavors of engineering coming at this topic area uh, with without the the doctorate in biology kind of degree and, and having read those kinds of papers and gone through those 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 ranks, you I understand for the earliest, early earliest days, like pre early, where you had found someone who was that topic expert. Um, so how did you start to find the way to, to, to speak together, like on the same wavelength?
0: Well, uh, we still don't, uh, we, we, uh, we speak different languages, but the, the beautiful thing is that, uh, David has such a malleable and open and interested, interesting, interested mind that he is absolutely willing, uh, to have a normal conversation about difficult science. And to be quite honest Uh, My experience is the more brilliant people are, the more simply they can speak about a complicated topic. So the the better the the scientist is, the more amazing is their ability to communicate science. And I saw that in our third co-founder, the one that I found first, Sam Gambier. He is a uh, brilliant scientist, one of the world's top people in early cancer detection. Uh, And he sadly passed away from cancer himself last summer. Uh, He was one of the co-founders of the company and on the board of the company. And I met him because I found an article about him uh, in the Stanford paper about how he lost his only child to cancer while he was searching with his son as a 15-year-old brilliant young scientist in his own lab uh, finding early cancer detection methods. And I I reached out to Sam uh, when I read this article, which was on Thanksgiving Day 2016. And I sent him an email and I said, Sam, it's not a coincidence I'm sending you this message today. I can only imagine how, how hard this holiday is for you. I read your article. I don't even know your son, but I felt a gripping sense of grief. And yet I was also very inspired by what you are doing. I would love to meet you. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm not a scientist. I do not know biology, but I want to build another company. I'd like to meet you." And then two months later, we met for breakfast at a very small place in Portola Valley by Palo Alto, which is where I live on a Saturday morning. It turns out he also lives in Portola Valley, a tiny town of 4,000 people. We're practically neighbors three minutes away from each other, not knowing each other. And before I knew it, I was at his kitchen table every other Saturday morning, and he was teaching me biology. Largely in vain, I have to say, but I give him a lot of credit for trying. (laughs) And then he introduced me to a lot of people. And three months later, I came back to him. I said, Sam, I'm so sorry. I still don't have it. Not the right people or an idea I believe in. But can I ask you a simple question? You have seen hundreds of ideas in your own lab in the last two years alone, probably which one has the highest potential and he looked at me in his scientist underselling type of way and he said there is this one idea that i believe has some real potential and that became early
1: that's uh that's it kind of makes my hair on on my neck stand up in terms of the way that that relationship was kindled and nurtured and something that um, something that I personally identify with and what you you had mentioned uh Sam I mean in, in his from the public materials and early it's evident the 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 leadership and contributions that he has made and, and continues to make um since his his passing on the company and on 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 you um i I too have had a co-founder who had passed away and the you know with with as an entrepreneur um in your your case it's it's not your first rodeo but it's still a rodeo nonetheless where it's it's hard work um i too had felt that and it was it's difficult to not only bring oneself up um you know back from from this person's passing but also then on on the business side of things being able to try to you know there's now a void on on uh this little you know nucleus of a company and trying to then readjust big bring the ship back again and bring it back stronger and rally the team around despite this blow how did you feel through this how did you navigate this kind of of event that we hope no other founder would would feel
0: well first I cried Uh, I I actually became very close to him uh, because as brilliant a scientist as he was really one of the world's best top three people in this field. He was an even more wonderful human being, an incredible person with values that are just enviable. And I I love this man. I didn't just like him. I loved him. And I only, this is the strange thing about this. I only knew him for like three and a half years. And I became so close to him that in the end, when he was um, – he was literally doing a board meeting from his bedside. He had been lying in bed for four months at that point already without hair. And he didn't go on video because he didn't want to distract the other board members, but he showed himself to me. And, the, the, and even like a month and a half before he died, I was in his bedroom and he's told me that um, practically no other people from his previous life were allowed in the bedroom because he didn't want to disturb them so much. And he had the trust to do that with me. And it was very touching for me. So when this happened, it was a big blow. Uh, And he was on our board. And he was uh, an inspiration on a personal basis and on a science level, of course. And at the same time, he had not been operationally driving the company. That's David and me. And David is an extraordinary uh, co-founder what I love about him is especially two things, uh, in addition, of course, to his scientific prowess. But the first thing is he can laugh about himself all day long. He's a very, <laughs> He's got this wonderful uh, self-deprecation, which I, I just find so uh, charming and uh, it, it makes me connect with him every time. And the second thing is uh, he is really able to withstand turbulences. And if you have a co-founder who you don't always need to stabilize, but where each one has their ups and downs when, and you stabilize each other, but you don't normally need to do that. It's more of a rare event where normally you know, you can rely on this person, it's like a rock, right? When, it, when, when, the, when, the, when the storm comes on the, on the, on the sea, then this is a co-captain who shows up with you on deck and you don't have to constantly constantly worry about them in that moment you can worry about the problem and so when this happened it was similar like he's just a very strong co-founder uh highly reliable and he and I got through this uh as as founders but more uh, equally or more importantly Um, Our team uh, rallied behind the whole situation as well. We've got um, a very hand-selected group. You might think 24 is not very big, and it's purposefully not, because we're trying to keep, we think small is beautiful. When when you're solving really hard technical problems or scientific problems, a small team is usually better than a larger team. So we're trying to keep it as small as we can. We're Mm -hmm. only hiring when we have to and each person's hand selected and hand selected by capabilities but also extremely by cultural fit Hmm. Uh, something that's often talked about everybody wants to talk about culture but i think it's still actually in reality highly underrated that's a different topic i don't know if we'll get to it the point i'm I'm trying to answer is it's, it's 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 about having that stability of the team in that moment when you need it and we feel this is our chance to carry Sam's torch and bring this forward and make his vision a reality. And if if anything, if anything, it has reinforced our commitment. We have to try to make this thing work. And if it's not for anything, it's for him. We have to try our very best. We can only give up when there's no more other chance.
2: Wow. Yeah, that's that's absolutely amazing that. You have such, I mean, you mentioned do something you love, but this kind of goes beyond that, right? Like you're not just doing something you love. You're doing something that you have a huge mission behind, a huge obligation to, you know, really raise up your co-founder's memory and, and also a huge impact on the people you can help. I mean, that's, that's amazing. And that's, I think that's what you need to do to solve these tough tech challenges?
0: Well, you need, all, you need a bunch of things. You know, you need, you need, um, you need really strong skills in the team. You need um, a lot of um, insights and creativity and you need grit to win. And then you need timing and you need luck. And I think it's those four ingredients Sort of like the, the basic ingredient is the great idea and the skills. Then you need grit, but then you also need timing and luck. And without the last two, s- startups don't win. If, you are, if you're too early, you're going to die on the line. If you're too late, you're going to be overtaken before you made it. And if you don't have luck, you're just not going to make it. For in this case, the science is the wild card. And it doesn't matter how well we execute. The science has to play along at some point, right? I'll give you an example. We were in the middle of the financing round, uh, our second financing round, our series A that we just went through and closed in January. We, we were in the middle of the round and we had only mouse data at that point. Over a thousand mice, that's great. But mice, as I mentioned before, they are mice. They are not close to humans, right? And we had started the canine, the dog trial, and we didn't expect the data to be out till, till like now, approximately like March of 2021. And it, we were now in the financing and it's obviously not easy if your co-founder dies, who is a world widely known scientist, uh, and you have mouse data only, and then you're in stealth and there's nothing written about you at the time, of course, right? And then we, um, we got lucky. Like the night before Thanksgiving of 2020, the dog data came back, the first seven dogs, faster than expected. And the data was really good. And that dog data was very convincing to investors because the jump from a mouse to a dog is a body weight from 30 grams to to 15 to 45 kilograms. It's a factor of 300 to 1,000 X higher. And the jump from a dog to a human is much smaller. It's two to nine X. And these dogs have spontaneous cancers, not induced cancers, like I mentioned before, just like humans. And so, getting this data back, it could have been bad too, highly risky, right? So, without luck, you cannot win because you can't influence science in a way that nature is either going to do it that way or not. It it, is imperturbed by your actions. So, um, luck is important too, and I think we have to. Uh, acknowledge that as entrepreneurs, what we can do as entrepreneurs is to create as many opportunities to get lucky as possible. So the more options you create, the more likely it is that one of them at least is going to work out. Just like we tried many different things in order to to get to where we're now. And if you don't, then you're probably going to bet too hard on one thing.
1: What advice do you have to... To, um, to either existing entrepreneurs or those who are considering it going down this path in terms of how to better architect their luck, as you say, like in terms of sort of parallelizing the, the opportunities. How does, how does one think about how to get more of those, as you said earlier, more shots on goal?
0: Yeah, the first thing is when you create an idea or pick an idea, make sure intrinsically in the idea it's built in that you can iterate. It's very risky to do something that just has a zero-one option, and you never find out in the meantime whether you're spending all, this, all these years and dollars, whether it's going to work or not. So you want to iterate your way to success as much as you can. Secondly, I would not bet too much on one thing alone, and on one thing to work out, even while you're do, doing the iteration. Try to find alternative paths. One of the best entrepreneurs I know is Reid Hoffman, uh, founder of LinkedIn, and. And investor in Airbnb and, and many other uh, other companies. Yeah. Uh, he always has this strategic roadmap in mind. It looks like a tree with multiple branches. And there's different options. If this doesn't work, we'll do this. If that doesn't work, we do this. And this is sort of like from left to right, the highest to lowest outcome. <laughs> and you always try to optimize, trying to get to the site with a higher outcome by having multiple branches that allow you to get there. So you have to think about it almost like as a uh, as an options game, where you are creating multiple options. You don't want to, at the same time, get so defocused by trying everything under the sun so that you're not trying nothing real uh, in reality. So there are different uh, incubation stages of these different branches where some branches you're betting big on and you're putting a lot of resources into it, which means time and money and people. And other branches, you're just gonna make them available. So in case you need them, you can go down that path really fast. It starts with thinking about alternatives before you need them, and then creating the options. For example, let's say in order to have an option to go, um, if your main customer that you're fighting for is not coming on board, then you need a different one that replaces that, probably not as good as the first one, but you still want to have an option. Well, if you only start making contact to that player once the other one has said no, you're in real trouble because you probably need six months until they even reply or until you get a meeting and, or a decision process for sales and so on. So you want to seed multiple options, and that's just the sales example. The same is true for product. So if this product feature doesn't work, what is your backup? And what is required to build it? What does the infrastructure look like on the back end? Is there something you can already create now and build in that's used for multiple pieces, including the one that you are betting most of your farm on? So that if that doesn't work, it's already prepared to take. To, you can t- uh, take it to another branch quickly. The same is true for um, for recruiting. Like I'm sure everybody has a dream candidate for a role, but it's not always going to be that person that's going to join you. So how do you seek multiple options? How do you build relationships? Relationships are not built overnight. And this is a big uh, insight I think over the years. Long term always beats short term. My definition, by the way, is it's built into the definition of what long term means. Long term is what's going to be the winner long term. So if you are trying to optimize short term, uh, then you're likely not going to be so successful in the long term. So you have to build a nice portfolio of short term and term and long term options that you're seeding at the same time and nurturing. And it takes discipline because long term options take a much longer time until they show any return on investment. So you have to believe that by doing that, by continuously nurturing longer term initiatives, you're actually going to reap a return down the road. And you have to have the self-discipline to keep going with them. And if you follow these basic uh, concepts, which, uh, which I listed, which is uh, think about multiple things, think about a tree, decision tree, nurture long term options, um, then you have a much better shot at having multiple options to win in the end. Uh, and, uh, and that one of them turns into a big win.
1: And this, the, as you describe it, I, what I hear a lot of that is, um, from you is that it's that there's a thoughtfulness that we can bring or, or and that you advise that we should bring to whatever our the problems that we're trying to solve. And, and if it's like a, so creating of a company, it, some folks are like, just jump in, try it and figure it out. You'll figure it out. But as I understand it from you, it's. You know, we we can we can take some time um, and and think about this, and then we'll know with confidence what our next steps sh- should be. Because we've already, in in a sense, informed our and written our playbook on that in terms of the the options tree and the ways to think about how to uh, manage the risk on something that's inherently never been done before and and difficult.
0: Yes, uncertain doesn't mean unorganized. Hmm. It means that I don't know with certainty which outcome is going to be the right one or which one is going to be the winner. So that means uncertainty requires more thinking, not less. But what you don't want to do is bet everything on one horse only because it's uncertain, right? And when you when you hedge, you got to be careful not to lose focus that's the trade-off because you can't do 15 things at one time. So you're you're creating and seeding options, but you don't waste all your your energy on all these options. You have to go for something that you believe in. So I I think one of the big learnings is here over, over time that startup work does not mean chaos. It means that certain things are chaotic in some ways, but you want to try to clean up the chaos as you go along. And it's fine, by the way. We're not... We're, we don't want to create a situation where everything is planned to death. That doesn't make any sense. I'm not a believer in that at all. Yes, you want to make decisions quickly, but you want to make decisions that are as, for, as informed under the conditions as possible. And the more chaos you avoid, and this is probably the biggest insight because I used to hate processes. You know, I, I'm not the kind of person who likes processes uh, like from, from, from his very nature. But I learned over time that processes are extremely helpful because they save you so much work. So if you can establish something quickly, let's say you find something out. Initially, there's no structure because you don't know what the answer is. So you try a couple of things. Then you figure out that one way of recruiting is better than another way. Then you quickly codify that and make it a process. And then you find out again, it needs to be adapted, you adapt it again, you codify the process so that other people can replicate the process and you don't have to reinvent it every time. Mm -hmm. And each person does it differently. And that's by definition, very suboptimal. If everybody's cooking their own soup and there's no coordination at all. So in other words, rapidly iterate also on processes, not just on products.
1: I think that that's a that I think is a really great uh, piece of advice that um, I, I can attest to, to the benefits of that. Um, that would I think would be a great sort of ender for for our listeners and our, and our viewers. do um, so yeah, you have any uh, final pieces of, of advice to uh, uh, to close on?
0: My only advice is follow your heart, because that's where the most energy will be and the most happiness will be. Follow your heart and take the risk of not knowing something. Because knowledge is something that can be brought along with brilliant people who know their stuff really well. Surround yourself with people who are better than yourself. You've heard that a million times. But the most important thing is, follow your heart when you choose what to do. Hi, I'm Syria Grudin, co-founder and CEO of Early. Stay tough.
1: That was a really interesting conversation about how we can expose cancer and live happier, healthier lives. In our next episode, we sit down with Dr. Kate Kruger of Helicon, who is an expert in high-tech food. So sit tight, like, subscribe, leave a comment, because in our next episode, we are going on a deep dive into synthetic biology, alternative proteins, and some really new kinds of things that we can eat. Stay tough.